Welcome to Ready to Listen, a podcast about digital learning, creativity, problem solving, and innovation. I'm your host, Troy Foster, and our engineer is Jonathan Kleinsmith. On this show, we talk to people from a range of disciplines about how they approach common creative challenges, and we've got a good one for you today. Our guest is Amy Silver. Amy's had an interesting journey from helping to curate events to digital production and project management. This is a fun chat about creative communities, coordinating a MOOC about Latin American music, and what it's like to live in a pub. So sit back, relax, and let's get ready to listen. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the Ready to Listen podcast. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Trey. Excited and ready to chat. (laughs) Awesome. So I want to talk a bit about creative environments. I understand that you once lived in a pub. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about this? Yeah, the Burmy. <laughs> I say that with a little bit, a little bit of um, admiration almost, actually. It was it's actually established back in 1853, so it's older than Parliament. So as you can imagine, it's got quite a lot of character. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's on the corner of Smith and Johnston Street in Fitzroy in Victoria, which is also a place with a lot of character. Um, but yeah, it was, it was great fun. So how did you come to be living in a pub? Um, opportunity came up actually. I, I used to go down to the Birmingham quite often to listen to live music. It was a great live music venue as you know a lot of Fitzroy is, the Birmingham, the Tote um, and a couple of other like uh, the Nightcat around there as well. It's quite good. Okay, so it wasn't like I uh, walked into a real estate office and they said, how would you like to live in a pub? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, actually, got, I don't could you imagine. <laughs> They'd be like, uh, sure. <laughs> no, yeah, I used to go down there quite often to listen to music. Um, and quite funny, when I was uh, living there, I used to pay my rent over the bar. Um, so it's like, oh yeah, we'll grab a round of drinks and I'll pay rent while I'm here as well, thanks. <laughs> awesome. And this is how you know Will Wagoner and the Smith Street Man? Yeah, Will. I, um, he lived at the Bermi for a little while. Um, and actually, back in his early days, Will, um, when he was doing his own thing, used to um, play a lot of his solo stuff at the Bermi. Um, but yeah, it was a great following there, great crowd. It's a lot, essentially, a lot of the residents and people that um, were in the area used to come down and have fun sing-alongs to Will's very... Um, storytelling and poetic kind of music. Yeah, it was great fun. Um, also met a couple of other um, bands that are getting on rotation on Triple J at the moment as well, so like the Bettys, for example, that support Will a fair bit. Um, and also actually met Chopper um, in a post office. He asked me for spare change. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's Mark chopper <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that was at his low point. <laughs> Low point, high point. It's well, he asked me for spare change, so okay. pro- actually probably a little bit of both. <laughs> did he ask you nicely? Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, he did. He, he was reputation. very, very <laughs> polite. I was kind of just awkward because you know it's not uncommon to be asked for spare change in that area. So I didn't think much of it to be honest at the time. Okay. Um, and then the manager of the post office afterwards was like, "Do you know who that was?" <laughs> but after politely saying, "Leave the poor lady alone." <laughs> <laughs> so I used to live in Melbourne, but I'm not familiar with the Smith Street vibe. So what was what was that like? Was there like a, 
um, creative community associated with that space? Yeah, very much so. It's um. Or is there? Sorry, yes. I talk about it in the past tense. <laughs> so it was a little bit grungier back then, I'd say. But yeah, it's got part of the. It's very hipster vibe. Um, when I was living there, it was bef- like just at the start of when it became um, the expensive place to live. It was very much um, uh, factories and the old dirty, d- like lovely pubs, like yeah, the tote and stuff. So that's um, it's pre-gentrification and they've tarted it up since. Yeah, that? pretty much. Yeah. I'm so not sure now if that's the, PC. It's the hipster vibe that you, um, for, but the hipsters they have to have the money. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's the well-off hipsters as opposed to the hipsters that had no other choice but to be hipsters back then. It's just you, you see that happen a lot in communities where it becomes the place to be, and then the people that made it the place to be get can moved no, out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> can't can afford no, to be there anymore. <laughs> can never longer afford to actually be there. Yeah. Um, it was funny as well, the Smith Street in Collingwood was actually one of the last streets in um, uh, Melbourne that you could actually legally drink on. Okay. Um, so it was great fun, you used to be able to just <laughs> go down to the local um, Woolworths, I think it was, and grab yourself a beer at the bottle shop and after doing your shopping and just walk home. Um, but yeah, it was because when I actually tried to pass the law to roll out um, drinking in the public areas, they mentioned that it was because of a lot of the indigenous population that used to drink around there. Um, and so the the bill got thrown out because it was... As racially motivated? Yeah, yeah, because it was racially motivated. So what type of work were you doing while you lived in the pub? Yeah, um, I was studying actually at the time. So I well, studying and working. So I was part-time studying event management at William Anglis... Um, Institute of TAFE in Melbourne, um, obviously, and (laughs) (laughs) also working part-time at a creative agency called Agent Creative. Um, So uh, uh, Agent Creative used to be engaged by um, a lot of marketing companies to help with activating um, uh, marketing campaigns. So yeah, so essentially bringing um, whatever the marketing message was down to the um, general public in a way that they would be able to interact with the message. So that's sort of like event management? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was event management, um, but yeah, covered off a uh, lot of, there was a lot of, it was kind of a bit of a uh, throw it all in together kind of situation where it essentially was surrounded with events or um more, more surrounding communication, working out ways in which to communicate a message and having people be able to interact with that. Okay, so there's a few different strategies for that. Like, what's some examples? Yeah, sure. So um, I work, when I was working there, I did... Um, uh, the, the Ballarat Art Gallery had an exhibition, which was for um, Peter Hintz, did was touring around with a lot of old Queen memorabilia, so it was Queen the Unseen exhibition. That, that's Queen the Band, not the Queen the Monarch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Queen the Band, <laughs> definitely Queen the Band. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's an exhibition on both. <laughs> yeah, no, way more exciting. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, so Queen, Queen the Band, um, so wow. Peter Hintz was, yeah, a roadie for quite a while for Queen, um, and so he collected a lot of obviously stories and memorabilia from his time um, and then actually did um, quite a long stint where he was touring around with um, his memorabilia so that yeah, people could see what he'd collected and his stories over time. So what, what sort of thing, what was your role with that? Yeah, um, so I um, was working, yeah, again, event management with that but um, so helping, our company helped with the design of the exhibition so 
working out what experience um, the general public would have whilst walking through the gallery, um, walking through the exhibition. So how you, what you wanted them to feel when they were going through, how you wanted them to be able to see certain parts, right down to like what music would be there, what colour the walls needed to be, um, how you're going to group and lay out all of the different um, memorabilia and photo options. Um, we also had a bit of a room which um, we collated a lot of uh, interviews, so it was a bit of almost like a, a, a sound room where you'd walk oh, in wow. and there was um, a video playing on screen which um, included some interviews with um, people that were part of the crew when crew came, when Queen came out to um, Melbourne, to, came okay. out to Australia to do their tour. Um, so that included um, interviews that we orchestrated um, with uh, like Molly Meldrum and Michael Gadinsky and Michael Matthews, etc. And you were involved in organising some of those guys? Yeah, so getting them all <laughs> together so that they could um, have their interviews with, um, uh, we, yeah, with my director at the time. So it was quite nervous. Yeah. <laughs> so you called, did you call Molly Meldrum? I spoke to his assistant. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I left that one right to the end because I think that was the one that I was probably the most nervous about. <laughs> okay. So when did you move into project management and digital learning? Yeah, well, um, E3 Learning is actually my the first step into the digital learning space. Okay. Um, before that, I had a little bit more of the experience with project management um, through my event and video production kind of skills. So I kind of came in with more of the... Um, communication and production skills that I then adapted to the digital learning space. So it's like a, a producer role in the more traditional sense? Yeah, exactly. So um, I actually used to do a little bit of freelance um, video production um, after doing some video production work with Agent Creative in Melbourne. Um, when I moved back to Adelaide, um, did a bit of freelance work with that, including some videos for the new Royal Adelaide Hospital project throughout the construction. Um, and then obviously wanted a full-time job and was very lucky to land one with E3 Learning. Awesome. To try and combine my technical, my, yeah, my thirst for technical knowledge um, with a little bit of creative flair all into one lovely role. So what are the differences between a production role and project management role? So in terms of like a producer, I, I mean the similarities are from my point of view that the producer organises um, equipment, people, um, things, make sure that there's a camera and a person there to hold it. Uh, project management um, has, is, is very similar. Yeah. Um, it's working out who you need to have, what, where, when. Um, is that a fair assumption? Um, yeah, kind of, actually. So uh, a video producer, director role would, um, yeah, as you said, they would, they would, um, organize the key contact, they would um, facilitate all of the crew that needed to be there, so video, audio, the different technologies, and also what needed to be done with the product after it's actually gone through that filming and production process, so moving into post-production, editing, etc., um, and review rounds. So quite similar here, especially with course development. Um, as a project manager, I would be talking to the client, work out what exactly um, what message they're wanting to convey and what tools they had to convey that message and then I would work with our uh, instructional designers and video production uh, our instructional designers and content development teams to work out um, 
if the tools that we had available from client would cover what was needed for um, development of the course content. Sure. So it's like it's a highly collaborative role, a sort of you know, the intersection between the the people who build the thing and the people who need the thing built. Exactly. Uh, and you do the interpretation and coordination between them. Glorified facilitator. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of push the tasks around, <laughs> and it gets stampy whenever it wasn't going right. <laughs> well, I think that's a really important role, though. So to, to make sure that both groups are working are working for the same purpose. Exactly. Yeah. So making sure that everybody's. Um, uh, jobs and work is actually aligned to the the final goal. So working towards achieving this common goal for um, client to meet the client's needs and all within the budget that we have available. Um, yeah, I think uh, in one of the one of the previous podcasts, actually, Johnny mentioned about um, you know it's a little bit of give and take and a little bit of negotiation that happens between a team. So knowing the client wants something specific then working out how we're going to be able to make that happen within again within the constraints that you've got so budget scope um time and also the team that we have available so it's yeah it's a, a problem solving role yeah very much so which makes it that yeah that's probably the most fun part of it to be honest yeah cool cool so you recently worked on a mooc about latin american music can you talk a bit about this yeah um so the mooc was as far as I'm aware, with Massey was a, a Actually, new... So I probably should get you to explain a little bit what is a MOOC. Yes. Just for people who don't know. Definitely. So a MOOC is um, literally translate to Massive Open Online Content. Um, so it's essentially a free course that's available um, online um, and open to the general community to be able to enrol in and partake in. Um, depending on the different platforms that MOOCs are on, they do take in different forms. Um, for example, the one that we did uh, with that's being delivered on the Open Study platform uh, was quite constrained with having uh, the four main modules that consisted of ten topics each. Um, after each topic was a little pop quiz and then a, um, a final assessment at the end as well. Um, each topic consisting of up to seven minutes of video. Uh, as well, so that's that's highly structured, and that's be that's um, mandated by the Open to Study platform. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. So I think on other platforms as well, you you know you could have a vary between um, video content or animated content or um, uh, delivered. Sometimes it's delivered academic, um, talking directly to screen, or it might be um, a combination of that and animated content. So yeah, it depends on the place in which it's delivered. Um, Sure. And the, the topic you guys were working on was the Latin American music? Yes. Can you yeah. talk a bit about that, that MOOC? It was great, actually. So it was kind of like a musical journey through South American history and political landscape, I think is probably the most fun way to describe it. Okay. Um, so as essentially, as you went through each of the four key modules, you would start back in the, um, the early phase, like early times, early history for um, Latin America. Um, right back into uh, during immigration and how um, immigration was starting to influence music um, and then also what influence music at the time would have on politi- the political landscape um, and the general community as well. Um, sure. Yeah, so it was really good. And then you should take, you, essentially as you go through each module, you're focusing on the different musical styles um, at the same time going through a little bit of the historical context. 
So it talks about the political and social uh, environment that that's come come out of, yeah, and why that why that is. I'm trying to remember which one. I actually had a look at the uh, a look at the course, and there was one I can't remember which one it is, but it was it's um, actually from Africa. Um, is it Tango or? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was surprised because it's um, I've always associated with Latin America, but there's actually said it comes from um, that antecedent, which is quite interesting. Yeah, I think um, there were. Yeah, so um, throughout some of the topics, it actually goes into a little bit more of a um, a lyrical analysis as well. So you take a li- little bit of a deeper deeper dive. Um, into some songs, um, directly translating some of the key lyrics out of the songs as well. Um, Yeah, and then also if it is like the slang words um, of the time or lymphado, then it would talk about how those words came to be and um, so whether it was uh, like, for example, Chechua, so it's a, a mountaintop community in Peru, and that's a really old language um, from Latin America. Um, so some language, some of the words from Chechua have actually um, progressed and turned into these lunfardo or slang words um, okay. in Spanish. Yeah, and so that's, that's through songs so you can see that you know it helps to describe the influences. So it's, it's uh, like a, almost a 360-degree perspective on culture, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah language and culture, um, political landscape and how, how it's all been influenced. And, th- and through the lens of the music. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, it's I've, great. You should, you should check it out. <laughs> I, I should continue to check it out. I've, I've, say, I've done, I think, topic one, which is fascinating, but um, yeah, definitely need to dig into that. Oh, that would be tango then. Tango? Yeah, I think that's the one that, that was the African... Has the, um, people can fact-check me on that. <laughs> um, so from what I understand, the MOOC approach relies heavily on the academics to produce and present the material. What are some of the challenges and opportunities that are associated with this? Um, I think... I really like to be involved in my projects. Like, um, I like to help in... Um, essentially solving the problem before coming to the client and providing more guidance and recommendations to help through the project. It helps me belong a little bit faster. However, in this instance, I had to be quite hands-off um, and uh, asking the academics to essentially write the material themselves. So we had to be take on a more of a, a guiding re- approach for them. So say, yes, this is the information that you're wanting to convey, um, how best would you convey that to the learner? Um, and that's where Jono actually was quite helpful with um, uh, scripting all the content. Because typically academic. we have an instructional designer that writes the course, mm. whereas where this is a little bit different is that the academics, then they have to write and present the material. Exactly, yeah. Um, so it's, a little, it's quite more collaborative in terms of... Um, yeah, it's more of a instead of it being an instructional design role, it was more of a learning design role. So it was yeah right. more of a guiding and collaborative approach with the academics and sort of facilitating coaching those guys to understand the criteria and the limitations and why they need to do things a particular way. Exactly. Yeah. So keeping wow. it to within that um, short seven minutes of content, which is actually surprising hard, surprisingly hard. I think it was yeah. There's quite a lot of words in seven minutes of 
video content, but also um, not assuming that everybody's going to be sitting down for four hours of video whilst doing the whole <laughs> MOOC, because that's a lot of but, video but content. They might. They might. <laughs> they might. However, I, for example, might stop every now and then for a cup of tea. So <laughs> it might be nice to have little summaries at the start and the end of each of the different topics to know what I've learned, what I'm going into in the next topic. Right. Um, so yeah, there's a little bit of guidance around that with helping to structure the MOOC and um, more formatting the content for them. Um, and essentially my role, again, was to just keep everybody in line, really. How were the facilitators with that? Because, uh, sorry, the academics, because um, they're obviously presenting this material in classrooms and things, so they've got a bit of an idea about how they want to do that. Yeah. Um, do you find that they're, they're very, uh, I'm not sure how to express it, whether they're strong-willed or yeah. they've got set ideas or are they open to the collaboration? Um, well, in this experience, they're quite open to collaboration. Um, for them, it was the first MOOC that they had done, so they did have a lot of great ideas. Um, but I guess it was uh, important to kind of talk through those ideas and work out whether or not those ideas were really going to um, meet the needs of the MOOC at the end of the day, and whether if they were a nice to have or a need to have. Right. Um, so really refining those ideas into what actually needed to be within the content as um, learning material. Sure. That's great. What, what advice would you have for a presenter working on a MOOC? Um, I think it was really good to ask for the academics to really practice in front of a mirror. At the end of the day, this is video content, so um, it was all well and good to be able to sit there and tap away at a computer to type out those seven minutes of video. <laughs> However, it is seven minutes of video, so the the academic needed to be able to be confident to talk directly to camera and to really um, express the um, learning content in a, um, a verbal format as well. So I think it would have been retrospectively, I think it would have been really nice to practice that a little bit more and even if I sat down with them um, for a couple of topics to actually ask them to um, talk through the material. Um, read aloud, yeah, essentially they're lecturing to camera, so I think it's good to keep that in the back of the mind um, whilst typing it all out on a computer. Did you, so I'm assuming they progressively got more comfortable with the medium, did you go back and do any of the initial, do any re-records or anything with that in mind? Or? Well, interestingly actually, with the MOOCs, we purposely, um, the, the, the crew that we had um, purposely shuffled around the recording of the materials so I think the first couple of topics were recorded right at the very end of the recording week the filming week um, and also the actual promotional video for the MOOC was done at the very end right. so it wasn't it wasn't scripted um, until the very end as well so it was more of so essentially everything that would really sell the topic was done at the end when the academic would be a lot more comfortable um, with content and obviously filming. So that's a built, inbuilt sort of flexibility. Yeah, so well it's it's, exactly, it's all video, it's all digital content so you can chop and change as um, much as you need to. Sure, so looking for ways of, that, that's interesting, so to get that energy at the start and sort of... Film it at the end. Of, got to find the sweet spot so that they're not... Um, over it, I imagine as well. Yeah, actually, that's a good point too. So there is a there is a very fine line between making sure that um, they have the right attitude to actually still be enthused about the content as well. Um, 
so not being too fatigued. Um, but they also do. The, the presenters do seem very enthusiastic in the introduction because I've watched that much of it at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were great. They were really great. They were um, quite enthusiastic about the topic and um, they were fantastic to work with. Oh, that's great. Okay, so <laughs> okay, so the, um, the big bogey question for the finish is the how do you see digital learning in the next few years? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I, I like to save the more difficult question for last. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um... I don't know, like, I think maybe next few months or now, um, there's the trends towards micro-learning. Um, everyone's constantly on their phones and in different devices, so it's not just online learning, it's digital learning, so it's delivered across multiple platforms. Um, I hope there will be increased video because that would be great <laughs> to be able to bring those skills all back in. You seem to have a vested interest in that, in that direction. Yes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see, um, we, it, yeah, I don't know. As with a lot of society, it follows, it follows trends. Um, so I guess it'll be interesting to see what the next big thing is going to be and how, um, we in being in an IT company will adapt to those trends and be able to meet learners needs in the way that they are willing, willing and able to learn. It is a very difficult question because the technology <laughs> just jumps so so rapidly, yes. and the cycles are getting tighter and tighter. And, um, but I, I think the skill sets um, persist. So things like the coordination, product, uh, produ production, producing, yeah, and uh, project management, things like that. It's it's still problem solving. It's just the medium changes. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's probably uh, a good part about E3 learning is that we do have that people aspect. We have personalities. We're real people. We have opinions. Um, so that definitely helps with um, delivering digital learning with a human impact to real people. Awesome. Nice. Um, did you have anything else you want to talk about? Um, I don't think so. I've done a lot of rambling. Um, <laughs> thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Amy. To find out more about Amy and some of the projects that she mentioned, check out the show notes. If you'd like us to listen to you, hit us up on the email, Twitter, or leave a review on iTunes. Our show is engineered by Jono Kleinsmith and presented by me, Troy Foster. Keep on listening. <laughs>